0: Uh, I was in the recon second recon platoon of the 823rd tank destroyer battalion, which was part of the 30th. We went to England. Uh, we the way it went, and you could pardon me if I carry you through this. I know we had our basic training in, in uh, Brownwood, Texas. I forget the name of that Camp Bowie. And then on to Fort Hood, which was the TD center, maybe tanks later. And then, uh, went on maneuvers in Louisiana and then came back to, uh, camp, uh, that camp, but a Claiborne was the one in Louisiana. And then from there we went to Boston. And from there we went down to the dock. And as I recall, we were, at sea on Easter Sunday of '44, and I believe that was in April. We trained in England uh, for that brief time, and then uh, <clears throat> got orders. You know, as a GI, I was a pri- <clears throat> excuse me a private then. You really don't know the big picture; you just do what you're told. So we left. We were living in civilian homes. They had moved out in this town called. Hereford, H E R E F O R D. And one afternoon they said, Pack up, we're moving out. And we stayed in a big meadow overnight, pup tents. And uh, that's when General Hobbs of the 30th addressed us and said, You're now part of the 30th Division. And uh, we went on from there down to Portsmouth. And I remember how heavy it was raining, just unbelievable. And, uh, in there and it was all fenced off. Uh, somebody said, once you're in, you're not getting out. And the only briefing we had was a tent with some big maps on it. And they told us we would have friendly troops on the right and the left. And the front ahead was fair game. And we landed on, uh, Fox Red Beach on uh, Omaha Beach. I know I did see that on the map. Um, that's where they told us we would be landing. Um, and that was somewhere between the 8th and the 10th. I quite frankly don't remember. Um, because I had a birthday on June the 3rd. That's my connection with the moment. <laughs> so we got up there and went to a marshalling area for the unit. And at that time we did, we were not, uh, uh, in M10s. I was in recon, so we had Jeeps and M8s. And, uh, the line companies, as we called them, we there were three companies, A, B, and C. And each had, uh, let's see, each company, the, the entire battalion had 36 three-inch guns. So each company had 12. And, uh, they were three inch guns and, uh, I didn't pay a lot of attention to them. I, I don't know how many they crew, probably five, five to a, to a gun crew. And uh, later they, they did well, um, especially at Wartain. And when we landed, the first thing we did is we crossed the Vire River. And the Via River crossing, uh, we were mobile, and uh, most well, first of all, we had to find a way across. And uh, in the recon, we had a really a good sergeant. Um, he knew he could use compass and maps and aerial photographs. He knew what he was doing. He was later commissioned. But we found a bridge. They talked about no bridges across. We found a bridge that was still intact. Uh, and went across the Bayou River without getting wet, and then we went on up to St. Lo, and we were the lead the element, lead element at St. Lo. The 30th was, and you probably heard about the bombings, right at the place where I shouldn't have been. Right, I was probably within 50 yards of General McNair, who was killed there. He's the only three-star general that was killed, and and he. Uh, I think his headquarters were in the states, but he wanted to see this major breakthrough. And uh, theoretically, it was to break through the hedgerow country and turn patent loose to go down the uh, Brittany Peninsula. Uh, but the first day, uh, we were—I was right up with the foxhole on the line, the LD, as they would call it and a line of departure, and they pulled us back, and the artillery then fired shells with red smoke in them, and this was to mark the line for the Air Force, Air Corps at that time, to drop, start dropping the bombs. Well, when I saw that they were starting to come down, oh, and each guy, at least on the line, had a red panel type of thing made out of stuff like a tablecloth, it was about six feet long and, and probably fluorescent, uh kind of or kind of reddish pink. And you laid that out on the in, on the back of your foxhole. And I had been given a smoke pot that if they were coming too close you pulled the top off of it and the smoke would come out, yellow smoke. And um I looked out, and so help me, the sky was solid black with bombers. And I've heard minimum the number of bombers in that raid, was 1,600 and a maximum of 2,500. And, you know, the Americans flew in tight formation. So it was just plain havoc. And I remember laying in my foxhole, and a little thing came whizzing in there it's stuck in the wall and I dug it out and it was a little propeller, maybe a total to the extent of the blades, maybe total of four inches and four blades. And I couldn't, what in the world is that? And later I saw some Air Force guys and they told me that that's a stabilizer on the front of the bomb. Now to be I don't know, somebody else may know better than that. But that's what I was told on yeah. simply And uh, I had it until I got wounded, and they must have removed it at the hospital. Anyhow, St. Lowe, uh, and they called, and the reason we couldn't get in touch with the bombers to tell them, stop, go home, was that they had, this I found out later in reading, that they were left to England under radio silence. Nothing in, nothing out. Unbelievable, yeah. Yeah. You bounce around in your foxhole, and the, the uh, concussion was well, as bad as anything. And, uh, yes, I would say maybe no more than five minutes they started dropping them short. But preceding the bombers, there was about 40 minutes of fighters. Now, they were strafing parallel to the line that, uh, the, of the troops. But the bombers came in perpendicular. And that's where the havoc occurred. And I was in my foxhole and I saw this, uh, it wasn't a GI, like a GI ambulance, you know, panel truck. This was a fancy ambulance, uh, like you'd see with one of the better funeral homes or mortuaries. And uh, I thought to myself, some brass has been hurt up there. And uh, later on, I had heard that it was General McNair, the only three-star general killed during the war. But he was, I believe he was from D.C. and came to watch this whole affair. And uh, so then after we regrouped, oh, and and the second day, they dropped him short again. And the 30th loss, I believe it was 67 guys uh, during the two days from our, either 67 or 87 from our own bombers, and we regrouped. And on the second day, uh, anybody that had a weapon was to carry the weapon and join in. Um, cooks, bakers, whatever, MPs, everybody was to make the attack. And we, they, on the other side of where the heavy bombing was, was. I guess maybe a battalion of German soldiers and they were non-Compass men as they were just babbling. And we went on, oh, I'm going to say maybe a mile or two uh, with very limited opposition and then we were just squeezed out by two other divisions and brought back for rest. And then the next major thing uh, was Mortain. And we had moved in there late in an afternoon and and the first division had was being pulled off the line, i guess uh, and they had just stopped there overnight and had set up probably some perimeter stuff but uh from what I heard that they weren't good positions they but you can understand if it was just for an overnight we're getting out of here tomorrow so they weren't really expecting maybe they had some some outposts or something but the gun emplacements and whatever were not, were not considered good by our people but they had to use a few of them but others that had more time dug in their own positions, these, these were now with the three inch guns the three inch guns we pulled by half tracks, and uh, the the guns had the trails on them, and and, uh, they dug in uh, so that they wouldn't roll back too far. And so on the we recon was gathered south of a town called Chuvigny, I think, and. We got a call, I didn't get it, the lieutenant got it, That to send up a machine gun crew up to, uh, I think it was B Company of uh, the 120th. And so the sergeant and another fellow named Fishbeck and I were best of friends. So if they told Chris, take a crew up, you could just count on them, (laughs) take us. So we got a machine gun and loaded up a jeep. We could go up this road a ways and then we put the jeep into a gully and carried everything up to where Lieutenant Queens had sent up there and sent, a, sent another guy down the road on a lookout, which we did. And uh, that night we could hear a tank noise. And in retrospect, this was a huge force. And how we were... On how that was unknown to our military intelligence, I, you just don't know. This was six armored divisions ready for this breakthrough. And the objective was, as I have since read, was to split American forces and drive them into the sea. Quite without communications when they would split the forces. And uh, we took the brunt of it, the 30th did, and... When uh, Lieutenant Green was saying spot the the gun there and get a field of fire and this and that, uh, we unloaded the ammo and stuff from the Jeep and the tripod and set it up on just a small hedgerow. And uh, St. Louis still had some hedgerows. I mean, they weren't true. We set it up and Chris went. Sergeant Chris went down the road a little bit to be on the a, a lookout outpost. Just and then he came back and said nothing going. I heard a lot of tanks moving around out there, and we had no idea what was out there—just tanks. Okay, so. That evening it was noisy. You hear tanks they squeak to me squeak, and and we also the track hitting the ground. And then it was started early in the morning. It started getting very foggy,
1: and I heard
0: Lieutenant Green, uh, saying fire, and fire. We were catching fire then from the German tanks, and he said, fire at the muzzle blast. You couldn't see anything. But we could. Uh, we were being approached by uh, what they would call Panzer Grenadiers that accompanied the tanks. They were the infantry, tank infantry. And uh, as the fog began to lift, we could see them, but they were bunching up, so they were a good target. And the tanks kept coming in, And this Lieutenant Green, in my mind, if there was ever a ramble, this was the guy. He ended up by having a machine gun in his belly, firing it. And I don't know whether he was uh, wounded or not. I later heard that he was taken prisoner. Uh, And if anybody has seen this guy that has said, you know, you deserve a congressional medal. But he got, as I understand it, he got nothing. Uh, He was a real hero in my mind that day, and we had the guns, the gun companies, our own gun company, uh, which was B Company, was set up, staggered up on either side of the road uh, with uh, four guns, and four guns there. The others had been moved over and along the road. And as they opened, and it was still very, very foggy. And uh, they were, as I say, they were firing a muzzle blast. And we couldn't see much until it loosened up a little bit. And then we could see the infantry. And what we didn't know was that this was the best they had the 1st Panzer SS Division, which was commanded by a guy named Joaquin Pfeiffer, I've since read. And he was, uh, he was seeing clever boy for the Eastern Europe, the Russian front, he he was the man. Anyhow, they came in and the sergeant on the front gun behind us was knocked out almost right away by a gun. We we grabbed the ammo and fell back and uh, they were advancing to where we were. And we set up again and these grenadiers, no point in shooting at a tank with a machine gun, but there was ample opportunity to shoot at the grenadiers. And we were doing everything we could, but you could hear them firing back and it sounded like popcorn hitting on the shields on these three inch guns. And they knocked, they knocked two more out and, and we kept falling back and finally at the third gun, uh, we were across the road from him, and he says, "I've I, I've lost my crew. I'm pulling the pen. which means he wouldn't fire. His uh, the Germans couldn't use it." And he says, I, "I'm pulling out." So we fell back, and it was a big, it went into into a hilly area. I mean, rather steep, like a bluff. And we thought, "Well, this is it." And up the road comes. Lieutenant Neil with a three inch gun in tow on his half track and he we watched him set it up and a tank up on this hill fired at him and missed and he fired back and hit it and it caught on fire and came down this rather steep precipice onto the road and I saw another one poking in his nose out around the house and as I was yelling at Neil, he must have seen it too And he hit that one, and it came down the hill and blocked the road. No more tanks could get through there. And the infantry could, but we were pounding away at them. And an infantry company then came up and drove the whole works back. Uh, And this all took about a couple of days. But Montaigne itself was probably a five- or six-day affair. When that last sergeant said, I'm pulling the pen, uh, we thought, set up and hold hold our ground. And Chris was that kind of guy. He said, we'll stick it out here. And uh, as I say, after the two tanks, when when Lieutenant Neil hit these two tanks and they, one caught fire and the other one just rolled down, and we, did, we were able to shoot some of the guys trying to bail out of the second tank. We, we were able to cut them down. But the infantry started trying to progress, and then our and we were shooting at them, and then our infantry started moving up and drove them back down the road. You just don't know what, what the hell is happening here, <laughs> and they're coming from all sides. And if it weren't for Chris, like Sergeant Chris, I'll tell you, we we might have had some other thoughts. But he said. He said, we'll stick it out right here. And uh, we planted that machine gun. And this, fortunately for us, the infantry came through and bailed us out at the very end. We went on then from Mortain uh, through, I guess we went into Holland first and we were brought back on a break. And then one afternoon, a guy in a motorcycle came up to where we were and said, you've got to be ready to move move out on an hour, in an hour. And we didn't, oh, and then he said, there's been a breakthrough. Well, we started talking, we must have broken through. I guess they're going to exploit the breakthrough. Well, it was didn't quite work out that way. And that the Germans, and again, missed. Colonel Joachim were in the first SS was leading the parade. And uh, so we mounted up. Uh, we had Jeeps and M8s. And then they, uh, oh, and in Aachen, we did get M10s. So we had M10s by that time. And uh, on the road all night and into this town, we went into the town of Malmody, as far as the second recon went, And uh, the lieutenant said, uh, go out and see if you can make contact. And he said, you might find it around the railroad track up there. So, again, I think Chris had just made a battlefield commission. We might have had another sergeant. And uh, so we did. And we got up to the railroad track and we could hear him talking and whatever and came back and said, yeah, they're out there. And uh, this was the forward elements of the breakthrough up that, you know, there were two green divisions apparently spread out way too thin that they attacked. Now, again, where was the intelligence? Where did all this, how could they conceal all this massive force of Germans ready to jump off and, and nobody have advanced notice? Maybe the weather, I don't know. But to me, that was a failing in two instances. At, uh, at St. Lowe and not at St. Lowe, at had more pain and in the balls. Um But um, we, in in the balls, I by that time, I guess I was a sergeant and had a squad. And uh, we were moving forward after the... You know they want what the Germans were after. They knew they didn't have enough petrol to to make uh, the objective, which was somewhere in France, Nancy or somewhere. And uh, they all had hoses that they were to drain the gasoline from tanks and vehicles. TDs were operated on diesel. Uh, but when they couldn't do that, and the big fuel dump was blown up, it was a huge fuel dump. Uh, and there was conflicting stories. Somebody said, yeah, the 743rd Tank Battalion blew it up. But John Cronin, who was 743rd, no, we didn't blow it up. He says, it was a couple of Belgian guys that fired into it and started the fire that blew the whole thing up, a couple of Belgian riflemen. So that's a question mark, what happened. But anyhow, it caught fire, and it became useless as far as fueling the the attack uh, into France, and here's where, in the bulge, uh, I had the squad and we went into a wooded area, and I could hear some talking, recognizing German, so I split the squad and we came in on both sides of them, they didn't want to fight, so one guy was a German dressed in his, officer dressed in his pinks and greens, imagine in combat, you know, his pinks and greens, and the other, I guess there were six or seven other GI, GI uniforms. And we just took them prisoner. And one guy, his first name is Joe, he said, uh, I'll take the officer back. And uh, I said, okay, go ahead. And uh next thing I knew, I hear so well, I didn't ask any questions, but he probably took you out. And... Uh, and then I kept moving into the woods and going up a, a hilly area. And when we got there, I went to the edge of the woods and looked down. And here was a rather large field with a tent, a white tent down there. And Germans moving around. So it could have been a, a maybe a battalion or a company headquarters. <clears throat> so I called back. And I said, send up an M-8 because the rifles would just alert them to the fact we were up there. Send up an M-8 and we could fire into that tent. And my pal Fishback, by that time, Fish, he was an M-8 driver. So he came up and he got their attention. And they started throwing a lot of mortar and artillery in there. And I said, Fish, back up. Get behind the house. You're drawing fire. And he said, I can't see to back up. So I went out of the house and started giving him arm hand signals, and that's when a mortar came in, and that took me down, and I went back to the hospital in Liege. And uh, I don't know quite how that all ended because I was in the hospital, but uh, that was our part in the bulge. Um, we got some prisoners and um, were part of the advance uh, the recon was in the advance we fell in with the infantry a lot and I went down about oh a couple hundred yards I could see a town in the the distance and a guy stood up in a field with a bazooka and I motioned to him to put it down put it down and and I was sitting in the Jeep, and as you know, the Jeeps have the swivel-mounted thirty caliber in the front seat. And uh, so I swiveled it around, and this guy in a put it down, and uh, it was anybody's guess whether he was going to put it down or bring it up, but I took him out. And about that time, the rest of his squad, I guess, got up in this field. They were kind of tall. I don't know what was going there, but it was tall. And they were standing. Well, while they were getting up, they were fair game. And I, they didn't even fire a shot. I was just sweeping and taking them out. And then I something caught my attention down the road to the left. And as I swung the machine gun around, to put a round or two in there, Boom, I'm flying, and the guy in the back, we had a car in the back seat on a 50 on a mounted stand, and uh, he didn't get a round off. He was a recruit. I think that was maybe his first or second day out. Anyhow, uh, I landed on the ground. The driver apparently got cut down. He was, he was getting out of the way. And uh, there was the guy in the back seat, I don't know whether his first name was James or his last name, but anyhow, he was blown out. And I looked over after, I know I looked, I must have been on my back because I looked up and I saw the wheel of the Jeep about 20 feet over my head. So in giving that a lot of thought, they were waiting for some tanks and had armor piercing instead of high explosive ammunition because if it had been high explosive, I wouldn't be talking to you today. I would have been finished in. But it was armor piercing, and it just come through the right front of the Jeep about where the front wheel is, and just took the wheel with it. Anyhow, uh, we were blasted out, and there was a ditch on the side of the road, probably an old irrigation ditch, and so I should get in the ditch, Mr. James, and... and uh, it was just getting to start to get dark, and here was a culvert, pretty fair sized culvert up ahead of us. That they probably they had dirt on top of it where they would bring the wagons across the field or into the field. So we crawled in there, and here's another guy in there, and I kept telling Ruski, Ruski. So we maneuvered to get him in between us, and we waited there. They came back, went through the jeep. And uh, the one behind us, and I could hear them talking, talking about cigarettes. The one behind us was on fire, and they wanted the cigarettes. And I waited till maybe really dark, maybe a couple hours, maybe more than that. And I told James, we're going to head back up the ditch. And uh, I there were a couple of guys in the ditch uh, that had been shot, but one of them I did See his face, and his name was Henson, and he was one in our platoon, and uh, went on back, told him to take the Ruski, get whatever information they can about the town, and um, and, it, and we went went to the hospital. Then that was where we, the headquarters, they had set up, so we were able to take a shower and get some clean clothes and put on. And then uh, the next morning, the division, I guess, uh, usually we were with the 120th. They moved out to take the town. And I went down to look at the Jeep. And some young infantry guy, and he looked at me and he said, is that your Jeep? And I said, it was. He said, boy, I wouldn't want your job. And I didn't say it to him, but I said, I don't know. I wouldn't want yours either. So... Um and then then on into Magdeburg and the only thing I remember, we had that they gave us a little map with a plot of the area we were to take and as a sergeant I had my own maps too but in the town of Magdeburg itself they had a plot of an area and so we while were going in, yeah, there were a bunch of zigzag trenches and uh so I told him, Charlie, don't know him. I said, get another guy and go through those trenches and see if there's any any stragglers left in there. The Germans had pretty well vacated them. But over on the side, there was a medic doctor, the long coat and everything, and he was waving. So I took the jeep and I went over that in that direction. And he was wanted medicine, and one guy's leg was just down to the bone. It was exposed. And I told Charlie, I said, take off your sulfur pad. And I took mine off, and we gave him to him, and then went on into the town. And as we got into the town, I was standing behind a, they must have an aluminum light pole standing behind a pole. And I'm poing, and so he shoot at me. So there was an infantry guy in a doorway about five or six yards from me, and I pointed up at the window, and he took a shot at him, and that was the end of that. The war was over at Magdeburg for us, and that had to be May 8th. And there was no activity really, a lot of planes flying back and forth for a few days before, and of course, The American place had these big white rings around them, painted rings, and uh, easy to identify. And I came home in October of 45. And my mother wanted a picture, so I took one and I put on it, Home Alive in 45. So that's one soldier's description of what did you do in the war, Daddy?